So the talk this evening is about resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. And of course, this is about equanimity, the quality of mind and heart that is so useful to us in our daily lives and, of course, on on the cushion in our intensive practice. Because it takes a large measure of this to be able to respond to whatever comes up in our lives, on the cushion, and not get overwhelmed by it. It's this ability to open to all of life with its ups and downs, its highs and lows, open to all the joys and sorrows with a a sense of loving, spacious kindness that we can have. So in this way, there is a a feeling in our hearts and our minds that we're really not closing down in denial to what's happening. We are able to open clearly to whatever is going on. We're not either pushing away or resisting uh, with some kind of aversion, whatever we're being faced with nor do we insist that it be otherwise than the way it is already appearing. It's already appearing. And so we, we become open to that instead of having our self-righteous indignation that it should be the way we, we want it to be. So all the ways that we may, be re- we may react to life without much understanding without a clear understanding, this is called reactivity. And it's the opposite of equanimity. In fact, it's called the uh, far enemy of equanimity because usually this reactivity can be noticed from afar. So one of the subjective experiences that we actually know when equanimity is present is the feeling of spaciousness, the feeling of even-mindedness. In fact, even-mindedness is one of the descriptions in the various ancient texts of equanimity. There's also a sense of quiet because there's an absence of ripples that uh, go out in reaction to whatever has happened outwardly or even inwardly. So because of that, because of that quietness, that spaciousness, the absence of ripples, there's a clarity about what's going on. There's an ability to see clearly, see things as they are. Whether it be life in general, a particular event in life, or the arising and passing away of any momentary event. In all those ways, there is an increasing ability to notice clearly whatever is happening. So it doesn't mean that there is nothing going on inside. It's not a cold aloofness or an emotional emptiness because there is this uh, mind that is able to see very clearly what's happening. And that, that's something that's going on inside, the clarity of mind. In fact, there can even be felt 
a kind of warmth of connection with whatever is going on. You might say that this warmth of connection is some kind of loving-kindness or compassion if it's facing suffering. It's really connecting with whatever is happening, and it's not disconnected. Very connected, but not reacting in unskillful, unwise ways. So rather than being an emotional emptiness, there can be a fullness of understanding because of that clear connection, because of the absence of ripples, uh, because of the quietness of mind, because of the, um, the boundarylessness of our hearts. So the usual ups and downs of life, whether they're intense or whether they're subtle, uh, usually equanimity in the texts are connected with these eight vicissitudes of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. And to all of these um, experiences in life, if there is not a measure of equanimity, some kind of unskillful uh, response can come, reactivity can come to it. First of all, there's delusion because of not seeing clearly. And following that delusion, there can be uh, a reaction of um, attachment if we want it to be other than it is. Or there can be uh, aversion also in the same way. So all of these can go on, as you may notice in your own life, when there has been some balance of mind. All of these can go on, but there just doesn't need to be a big drama towards it in response to it. The mind and heart makes room for whatever is happening and says and can say, this too is part of life. It's not that this is not supposed to be happening, but the fact is that this is happening and the mind and heart can open to it. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, uh, one of our um, great translators of Pali into English of the ancient texts, says that we're able to face the ups and downs of life with a brave heart. And so in Dharma stories, there are various metaphors from nature um, that are given that say equanimity is like a clear sky or the space of the sky that can contain everything and anything. It doesn't reject or eject whatever appears in this space, in this sky. It allows the transience of whatever is coming through to come through. And then there is this ability to see that transience very, very clearly. So if our minds are like that, clear and spacious, then that happens as well. It allows this ability to notice clearly, to notice honestly whatever appears. And in that appearance, the ability to see its transient nature, to see its ephemeral nature, to see its unsatisfactory nature is there as well. 
So this happens not only in noticing what's going on in our inner lives, but of course in the outer world when, something's, when something happens in the lives around us, in our world around us. There's a lot of ups and downs, of course, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. And when that goes on, we're able to say more and more, this too is part of life. It's not really unusual that this is happening. And our hearts are able to be big enough to contain it over and over again, which doesn't mean that we don't do anything about it. It just means that we stop closing down, stop resisting what's happening. And this is huge. This is a huge part of our ability to uh, begin to have a kind of balance in response to whatever is happening. So when we notice the inner events of our mind and heart clearly, if one recognizes that the mind is not affected by greed or aversion or any kind of delusion, then that is a sure sign to take appropriate action. But it takes equanimity to be able to notice really what's going on in our own hearts so that we're not taking action with any kind of strong wanting, with any kind of strong aversion. When we notice that there's an absence of any of this, then we take action. So then our words and our deeds have a powerful healing and nourishing effect on the world, on those around us. And in our own minds, it begins to have a nourishing effect. His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, is a great model, of course, navigating his world and what's going on in his world, which we share with him, of course. He has a lot to respond to with all the ups and downs, gains and losses, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. It's um, very much in the forefront of our world. And so His Holiness says, in that state of mind, of equanimity, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason without losing one's inner happiness. So this state of mind um, is a great help to us in responding to our world. The story I often tell is once I heard the, His Holiness being interviewed and um, someone was greatly um, affected by what was going on with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the things he had to face. And so this person came forth and said, with a great deal of um, kind of over-enthusiasm and some sense of self-righteousness, it seems, and said, I will do everything I can to help you. I'll really fight to help you in your cause. And His Holiness responded back, not now. Wait until you're, you have more balance of mind. I'm just paraphrasing. Um, work on that first, and then do that kind of work in the world. Because then you'll really be effective. So I've noticed sometimes um, with myself, 
when I've missed the chance of responding with equanimity to what has gone on around me in the world. Usually it's with my own family, um, with Steve or with my children or my grandchildren. And uh, I've lost that first chance to to just see this is the way it is right now, which is one of the phrases we use with equanimity. And um, I've noticed my own mind and heart already having a sense of aversion or, you know, there's a cutting remark right at the edge of my tongue ready to be spit out or there's some kind of emotional response that has already begun to show on my face or in my posture. And then I have to, with equanimity, turn towards that, turn towards what already has begun to react within me. And it takes a great deal of not only equanimity, but a great deal of compassion to turn towards that and say, this is what's happening right now in my own heart. And develop a sense of balance around that. So there's two ways, there's two worlds, actually, basically, that we develop equanimity with or towards the outer world, and the inner world. And if we miss our chance in responding to the outer world and the events of the outer world with equanimity, and we've already felt a sense of uh, attachment or aversion arise in the mind, and maybe we can catch it soon enough before it comes out of our mouth or our actions, then we're able to open to that and say, give it a lot of space and say, This, too, is the natural unfolding of the law of my heart right now. Due to causes and conditions, it's just what's happening right now. So it it just helps us to let it arise and pass away, refrain from acting it out. And in this case, when we know that there is attachment or aversion there, then non-action or um, refraining from speaking is the appropriate action. And oftentimes we don't think of non-action as wise. We don't remember that. But more than most times, more than half the time, I find that non-action has been the appropriate thing to do. And because usually, if there were action, it would have been accompanied by some kind of defilement. So as a mother of grown children now, this has saved me so many times from having another checkmark on my children's list of, you know, (laughs) you weren't a good mother. Um, They don't really think that, but sometimes they, they say that out of their own reactivity. Um, And then I have to open to that and say, that's just how it is for you right now. And um, not add more injury to that. So equanimity is not a precarious balancing, like being on a razor's edge and afraid to 
tip this way or that way because we might cut ourselves, we might get hurt. That's there in, in that kind of model, there's a sense of stiffness and rigidity there. And a kind of a lot of fear to do the wrong thing, to not be sure of ourselves, to not have real confidence. Equanimity more has a feeling of a very wide stance. Um, that wide stance gives us a lot of balance. It feels like a mountain. And sometimes in the text, this mountain is given as a model, is given as a metaphor of equanimity. A mountain that is able, with a very wide base, and uh, to, to withstand all the forces of nature. To be able to know that this is just seasonal, or this is just a weather pattern that's happening right now. The weather patterns that uh, the mountain is faced with is very similar to the weather patterns of our own minds sometimes. Sometimes I notice what's going on in my own mind, like uh, a mountain may notice of the various seasons and weather patterns. There's um, dryness, there's lightness, there's darkness, there's sometimes the wetness of tears, there's a lot of heat, there's coldness. All of these manifest. There's birth, there's death, the birth of um, new growth, spring. There's a death that happens in winter. And so it is in our lives as well. The seasons of our lives, the weather patterns of our lives. Sometimes I notice how it is in my own heart. It can feel very hot, like anger. It can feel very cold, like fear and closed downness. And when sometimes when my kids or my close family ask me, what's going on with you now, Mom? It, it's something's going on with you. And I just say, well, I'm just experiencing some weather patterns of my own heart. And just and say, okay, we'll leave you alone. We better leave you alone now. <laughs> So as human beings, with that inner kind of that understanding of how it is in our hearts, um, we have a lot of spaciousness to just, okay, this is part of the journey right now. Um, One of my friends says, um, oh, your your moon is in feces. That, that wasn't in my notes, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> when I'm cranky or, you know, I'm just not in a good mood. It's just what's happening, you know. So, so we have that sense of this is just part of our life. This is just part of the unfolding of life. And we can allow ourselves to be human and actually feel it. We don't have to act it out. If with equanimity, we can actually have a greater capability of knowing it's there without acting it out. It's so important in our practice on the cushion and our practice in our lives. This is part of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, 
joy and sorrow. It's all part of life. And somehow we think when we come to our lives as meditators that somehow we think it's just going to be bliss or all good. You know, we, we expect it to be different than it is instead of saying we come to the cushion to see what part of life is going to show up now. And this would be a wiser thing to do, to come to our cushion and to come to our life and just be ready for it, for whatever comes up. It's from that honest recognition that a lot of resilience in mind, that of mind, that flexibility of mind that's so important can be there. It's just the ability to be in the winds of life, to be in the rains of life, to respond as needed, but not to be overcome by overwhelm, because then we can't really respond properly. We can't really respond in a way that makes any sense or that has any kind of outcome. Maybe have a short-term outcome that works, but not a long-term outcome. Someone said recently that uh, when this person got angry, it made every, everybody get in line, but the long-term outcome of that wasn't so good. And this is all not without the quality of care, not without loving-kindness. There's a huge amount of loving-kindness. There's a huge amount of care infused in equanimity and vice versa. This unshakable balance of mind is endowed with great care. And the care that is recognized within equanimity is the care or the kindness of patience. This is what is most um, available to us. When there is patience, there's usually equanimity very nearby. Patience is the quality of loving-kindness and equanimity together. It's manifested as patience. Often, this patience is likened to the kind of love parents need to have for their children. And um, it's not limited to that. It's, you know, the kind of love we, we have for our close friends and our family members. It's said in the practice of loving-kindness that equanimity gives metta its unconditional quality. Many of you have been practicing metta before this retreat, so I wanted to mention that, and you've been practicing metta for a couple of days now. It gives that unwavering loyalty to be with the difficult times and to see these difficult times within ourselves, within others, as a natural process of life. That what you're going through right now is, is difficult. And when we say, may you be happy, we're recognizing, maybe we get to the difficult person, We recognize the difficulty we have. We recognize the difficulty that person has. But loving-kindness can still be there and and says, because of equanimity, no matter what's happening, I still offer you this care. No matter what's happening, I still offer you this loving-kindness. Even if it won't be accepted, 
even though it may be misunderstood, even though I won't get any response, may not get any response from you, even though it won't have any effect at all, I still offer you this loving kindness. And that's what makes metta so powerful and strong, because it can still offer that no matter what's happening, even if our wish never comes true. It's still goodwill that we offer. So it accepts these ups and downs of life in ourselves and in others. It's not like a resignation. It's not like being a doormat to what's going on in in our lives or other people's lives. It's just this loving acceptance. This is part of the unfolding of your life. This is part of the unfolding of my life. It can't be helped because it's already happening. It's not like we can prevent it now. And so the wise thing to do is to open to it. So a lot of times in my own metta practice, I'll say as much as I can stay open to your process in life, I do. And as much as I can offer you loving kindness, no matter what's happening in your life, I offer this loving kindness to you. So uh, a story about our daughter, uh, Therese. She's now a grown young woman, beautiful young woman. And I want to say that um, we have her permission to tell stories on her because she gets royalties, actually. (laughs) She asks me every time we come home, how many stories did you tell on me? So... um, She's, she's okay with this. So this is my daughter and, and Steve's stepdaughter. Steve helped uh, me raise this one, this last one. So we were going through some difficult times, a great passage for Therese when she was going through her teen years. And it was hard for everyone. And um, she does uh, metta practice in her own way, and she's done a couple of retreats, um, her young adult retreats. And I am sure that I must have been in that last category of the difficult person for her, you know, a number of times, if she could even muster me in that, that category. And she has been in that category for me. And oftentimes it's the people who are closest to us that are in that category when we come to it. And so I had to add on to when I said the phrase to her, offering my goodwill to her, may you be peaceful. I had to add on a kind of equanimity phrase or include an understanding, even if I didn't say it out loud or to myself in that phrase. May you be peaceful and this is how your life is unfolding right now. And so it, I had to remind myself to put equanimity in there. Because if I didn't, I would be saying, may you please be peaceful. <laughs> you know, there would be some kind of attachment to result there. It's another way that equanimity makes our phrases unconditional. Because even if it doesn't happen, we still offer our goodwill. 
a lot of times um, I would say, I accept how this is for you right now, which is another statement of loving kindness, that acceptance of, as much as I can, I accept how it is for you right now, as hard as it is. And as much as I can, I accept how it is for you right now. Sometimes uttered with a lot of compassion, I would just say, in in order to have some kind of distance from, you know, I get so hooked into my children's lives, of course, as most mothers do. And I would just say kind of a more general phrase, all beings have their own journey. And this is your journey. There's, you know, sometimes that phrase has in it, sometimes there's nothing I can do about it as much as I want to, you know, from control to acceptance and everything in between, as I can't really, um, I can't really set the sails of your boat through the river of your life. There's so much that's not in my control. And so it, it just has that meaning with a lot of compassion. There's for myself, for my children. There's so much that's not in my control. All beings have their own journey. And this is a lot of equanimity. This is that um, kind of rephrasing that traditional phrase, um, all beings are owners of their karma or their actions, their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. And so I rephrase that and say all beings have their own journey. And so it is with those close to us, our friends, you know, not even those close to us, with those in the political arena, in the religious arena of our lives, in um, just in a bigger circle of our lives. We do what we can, but equanimity, we do what we can with all the compassion and love of our hearts. And we don't do what we can, what we, what we might do if there's an absence of love and compassion. That's part of equanimity too. But when we do what we do, We do it without attachment to result. We do everything we can for our children, those near us in the political arena and our spiritual life. But um, if we have attachment to result, we'll suffer and they'll suffer by feeling that kind of holding on. So when she left home, After graduating from high school, I still remember very clearly um, she was 18, and she's a very tall girl. And um, I remember when she was small, and she'd be on my lap in the morning when I'd be sitting. And I'd just do my practice while she was either nursing or I was holding her. And now here she was coming to my lap and uh, putting her head on my lap and it was her graduation day and her head was on my lap now and her long dangly body was hanging off the bed. She's about 5'10 now and um, I was 
just thinking of all the times, you know, all the beautiful times we had together and all the difficult times we had together and, um, you know, the particulars of all that. And I wasn't, Steve and I weren't without the dukkha of that at all. You know, we had our own things that we had to go through. And um, she was going to leave the house soon after that. She wanted to be on her own and strong-willed and couldn't stop her anyway. So, well, all beings have their journey. And um, so sitting there with her and some tears falling, falling that evening is her graduation. And I noticed that one tear was saying, don't go. And the other tear was saying, please go. (laughs) Just the ability to hold both in, in my own heart, you know, the ability to hold her life and the range of what goes on in her life, the beauty and the, and the sorrow that goes on in her life and the beauty and the sorrow that goes in my own heart, you know, to be able to face that and then to face this. It's all part of the practice of equanimity. So can we have our hearts big enough to contain all of that? That's, that's a question that the practice of equanimity asks us. That's the koan. The spaciousness and expansiveness of a balanced and big heart gives that immeasurable inclusivity. That's a term that His Holiness the Dalai Lama uses. Immeasurable inclusivity that can pervade metta to an individual being and include all of that being every part of that being, the difficult part and the beautiful part of that being, and not have any boundary line or anything stopping us from doing that. That immeasurable inclusivity can pervade metta to all beings also, without discrimination, without uh, being exclusive. It's said that when equanimity is included in our metta, when we understand equanimity through metta, it breaks down the barriers of our hearts so that we can send metta to all females, all males, all creatures, all um, those who are tall and short, rich and poor, you know, whatever it says in the metta sutta. All beings everywhere without a barrier. So it's characterized as an evenness of heart, an evenness of heart towards all beings. And this evenness of heart is a protection because it brings wisdom in. This ability to have this evenness of heart without this reactivity, without causing the ripples which cause us to not see clearly, when there is a clear seeing, that's wisdom. And it's a beginning of wisdom. It understands that gain and loss, uh, fame and disrepute, etc., are all part of life. That's, it's all part of life because cause and effect is happening all the time. 
And so this is a, a wisdom that we come to accept. We're not caught in delusion to say that whatever is happening now, whether it's pleasure of, or pain, that it will always be that way. It's always changing. This is another wisdom to understand the transience of life. There is birth and death also. There's sickness and health. It's always changing. So the wisdom of knowing the transience, the wisdom of knowing when there's pleasant experience that you can't hold on to any of it, that there is nothing to hold on to in this conditional world that will be um, permanently a source of permanent happiness for us. It's not always wonderful, and it's not always difficult. It's that kind of simple wisdom, too. So if there's no protection of equanimity, and we've already reacted to what's gone on in the world, um, or in our uh, close world, our world of family, our world of community, and we've already reacted, as I've mentioned before, then we bring equanimity there to our own hearts. Um, so whatever measure of equanimity that we can call forth, if we've, if we've lost the first chance to bring it to the outer world, then we have a second chance of bringing it to our inner world. So I'm sure all of you in your lives have connections with um, young adults or even small children, if they're not your children or even not your grandchildren, but you somehow have connection with them. And I'm sure you can relate to this, how for me, I see my grandchildren. I have five now, ranging from 15 to um, three years old. And oftentimes, I see the condition of the world, and I just think of them right away, and it kind of my, my heart just freezes up, and some fear comes into my mind about them. And it, it's, it can be really difficult in my own heart about what is the kind of world they will be faced with. And a lot of times these days, I'm using equanimity practice to um, face that fear inside of me about how my children's children will have to face life, and to say to myself, again, all beings have their own journey. And in my life, I'll do the best I can to offer what I can to them. And um, just having more balance of mind to see that they may be able to handle it with more equanimity than I am able to handle it. The karmic unfolding of the natural lawfulness of life is so impersonal, really. And when I touch into that, it's what, um, it's what wisdom opens me to, opens the heart to, to see that it's all of it is naturally unfolding. This is lawful. 
the way it's happening. The laws of cause and effect are going on. The Buddha described this quality, this quality of uh, equanimity that brings in wisdom as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. That sense of spaciousness to include everything at all levels, not exclude anything. This protects us from delusion, the delusion of closing down and not seeing clearly. It gives us a clarity to see uh, the dangers and the goodness of any situation, any event, any experience, and to respond uh, appropriately. I want to make a point that equanimity doesn't preclude that we don't take action. The Buddha also said, when liberation of mind by equanimity is developed, No limiting action remains there. None persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeteer could make him or herself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when equanimity is developed, no limiting actions remain there. None persists there. So um, I was remembering a story a few months ago of when I was living in this little village where, uh, where we live in Maui, and um, it was another place we lived. And uh, outside the living room window, I could see um, this, this street, which there was a stop sign at. And the, I would see who was the neighbors passing by. It was a small village. And I could see who was coming and going. And there was... Um, a car that stopped at the stop sign. And in Hawaii, all the windows are open. And so the car was stopped there for a while. It was a Volkswagen. And I heard a lot of crying. There was a young child crying. And then some screaming taking place. And so um, I was looked out the window, and I saw that there was something wrong that was happening. There was some danger to the person in the passenger seat. And the person in the back was a little boy or a little girl crying loudly. And so I didn't just stay in my house and say, this is how it is right now, and not do anything about it. So I really want you to get that picture. I went out of my house, and I went to the stop sign, and I opened the door, And I said in a very strong, loud voice, get out of the car. And um, I pulled the woman out of the car, and I got the, the person, the little child in the back, out of the car. And the person in the driver's seat had um, stopped whatever was being done. And there was some, one person in the driver's seat was hurt. And so I took this person to our house and said, um, you know, what can I do for you? Let me help you. And the the person driving the car drove off. And so just helped her water, whatever I could, a cold towel. And then um, I said, I think 
it would be good to call the police to make a report. And she said no. And I, so we talked about it, and she said, I don't want to do that. And she was very adamant about that. And so, you know, there again I thought, I'm doing all I can, but it's really up to this person. I can't really control what she does. All beings have their journey. So we do something about it, but we can't really control what happens with our actions. Maybe there was some, you know, short-term safety for her, and I felt okay about doing what I did. But we often get the wrong idea that this is a state of just dry, callous coldness, where we just see what's happening and we don't do anything about it. This dry, callous indifference is what is called the uh, near enemy of equanimity. It's called the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity, because there's a lot of distance. And um, actually, the heart is very closed down. It's not opened with metta. There's not a connection. So this near enemy can often be a mask. It can seem like equanimity, but it's actually apathy. Sometimes I felt it in myself when something's happening in my world, and I'm saying that I'm really okay, I'm really cool about this, but inside I don't feel that way, and I'm not copying to it. And I, for some reason or other, Maybe I have to make a distance for a while. And so it's to watch, just to watch what, whatever is occurring in, in our own hearts. And to notice that too, to notice that, that in a way that is a reaction, that reaction of apathy, that reaction of indifference. So it's said that the main characteristic of equanimity is resting the mind or heart before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind or heart before it falls into the extremes of reactivity, which has two branches. It has aversion or attachment. These two can be the reactive uh, uh, heart or mind. Or the other extreme is indifference, callousness, apathy. When there is um, that sense of strong, calm, spacious balance, you really can feel it being in someone's presence. Um, Someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I've never been in the presence of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the Nobel Prize winner and one of my heroes of, in Burma, still um, under house arrest there. There's a strong graciousness about this kind of being when you're in the presence of this kind of being. So equanimity is, has some outer manifestations also. It says in the text that um, it manifests like a ballast of a ship that keeps the boat upright in strong winds. And um, when we look back at all our great leaders, Martin Luther King, um, Mahagosananda, 
Aung San Suu Kyi, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, these leaders of our time, Gandhi, we see that these leaders had this manifesting in their hearts, in their minds. This very deep kind of composure of the mind and heart. So that evenness of heart is a strong quality that nourishes also the wisdom factor that um, brings wisdom forth. It has great importance in terms of accessing wisdom, not just uh, its great importance of metta or being in the world and our, uh, the development of metta. The Buddha would say that for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, and this is a quote from the Buddha, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. It is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. Sometimes this um, great equanimity is called the gateway to the unconditioned, the gateway to Nibbana. It's a very exalted state of mind. This kind of wisdom that it brings forth cuts through delusion and bears the realization of complete emancipation. Quote also from the Buddha. It bears the fruit of liberation. So it's not only a protection from being overwhelmed by the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, um, fame and disrepute, etc. It's also a deeper protection because it calls forth this very deep wisdom that protects us from greed, hatred, and delusion, and ultimately is a gateway towards the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. In a very practical sense, um, there is that recognition, that wise recognition that uh, comes forth with equanimity that says that our actions bear results which affect us and in effect we create our own future world. In effect, we create our experiences. So it brings that understanding to us. With that understanding, there's a greater carefulness in the world. So how can we open to the outer conditions of the world and not get overwhelmed and still connect with a kind of clarity and compassion? How can we open to the inner world of the patterns of thoughts and uh, the habitual unwholesome qualities that arise in our inner world without getting overwhelmed by that, to connect spaciously and caringly with that as well. This is the, this is the question that um, is answered by equanimity. Sometimes experiences in life or in nature help me to just hold an understanding of these great qualities in my body, mind, heart, in a way that doesn't have to have me think about it, um, you know, in a theoretical way. And so a vision I hold 
very dearly that actually was part of my life that gives me that great sense of uh, embodying, feeling of that equanimity being embodied for a few moments was an experience uh, of when I visited Munindraji, uh, one of our Dharma teachers, and um, it was a time when I visited him in India, and he wanted me to um, visit with him some of the holy places, and so we got to visit two of the holy places of India, the um, place where the Buddha was uh, enlightened and the place where the Buddha gave his first sermon in Bodh Gaya and also in Sarnath. And so uh, we were on our way home. We were in Varanasi and we were about to catch a plane uh, to Calcutta so that um, I and my friends could go on home from there. And one of the things that Manindra always talked about uh, wanting me to do was to go with him down the Ganges River to be able to uh, ride on a boat. And this, these are his words. He wanted me to see the dead bodies floating in the river. Only a Dharma teacher would want that for you. <laughs> Just part of opening to death and all of that. And so um, we hired a boat early in the morning and we got on a small little boat, and it was before dawn. And um, the sun was not yet up, but we could see the sky being lit over the horizon of the Ganges on one side. We were going down the river, and so on the left was the uh, rising sun, but not yet risen. And on the right were the burning ghats, where they burned the bodies and you could see um, the boat would go close enough so that you could see some of the pyres of wood and the bodies there on the pyres of wood burning and the, um, and the families there in their sorrow uh, around, around that, those bodies. So on the far horizon to my left, there was new life. The sun was rising We could see the beautiful crest of it, the great orange-yellow light, and um, the power of that light in the sky. And on the right was death. And to see the death right there before my eyes, which was not that unusual for me, but the contrast and the heart needing to be big enough to be able to hold both sides. And also the, just being there in the boat, the happiness with them um, on my left, holding my teacher's hand, and um, that kind of happiness to, to even have a teacher and to have that kind of unconditional love from a teacher like that. And then on my right, the sorrow of the, the people mourning the going away of their dear, dear one, their loved one. And also the good fortune of having um, friends there with me in the boat, a few friends, a couple of friends, and um, feeling the gratitude for that, and then seeing 
that it wasn't that way for the people um, around the burning ghats. So the beauty and the rawness of life, to be able to hold it both in one breath, in one heart, in one space of sky, of the mind, and to say, this is life, this is part of life, and this is part of life too. And just to have my heart really settled around it and not reacted, reacting to it. Just to have a peacefulness about it. And I think India does that to you anyway. And um, it's really something that stays with me as a sense of equanimity that uh, is beautiful. So I'd like to end. Uh, this is a poem from William Stafford, and it's from actually his book of poems called The Way It Is, which is all about equanimity. So he talks here about the thread, um, the thread. And so when I read this, it was about, to me, the thread of equanimity through our lives. And the name of this poem is The Way It Is, as well. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever lose the thread. So let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by Kamala Masters at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 23, 2007. It is an offering.